Welcome to the Ninja Tune Podcast with myself, DK, and today we'll be talking to Throwing Shade about her new EP, House of Silk, which is out on Ninja Tune. Plus, we'll hear about her studies in ethnomusicology, her views on women in the music industry, and of course, some of the music that has influenced her over the years. After that, as always, we'll hear some of the new music that's coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels. Welcome to the Ninja Tune podcast, and today we'll be talking to London-based producer Nabiya Iqbal, better known as Throwing Shade, who has an EP coming out on Ninja Tune called House of Silk. Welcome along. Hi, thanks. This is your fifth EP? Fifth release, yeah. Um, following releases on uh, Omanera, No Pain in Pop, and uh, Happy Skull. How did this transition to Ninja Tune happen? I don't even know. I still can't believe it. <laughs> um, it just happened just purely by, I don't know, good luck, I guess. Um, my last release came out last May on No Pain and Pop, and then since then I've just been working on new music. Um, and then once I'd got a bunch of new tracks together, I thought I'd send them out to some of the labels that had been in touch. So when I was emailing them out to everyone, Ninja Tune actually wasn't on that list of labels, but then I remembered my friend Ollie, who produced my NTS show one time, and we were just chatting, and he works here at the label, so he, he'd he mentioned that, oh, if you've got any new music and you want to send it over, you should just do it, so I did that, and then I guess it was just serendipity that Adrian at Ninja Tune happened to be a big fan already, and he, so he told Ollie, he listened to the music and then he's like, oh, I've already got her other records. Um, we should set up a meeting. And then that's how it happened. Can you tell us a bit more about this new EP? Um, in particular, that the hashtag IRL track. Oh, yeah. So that's the lead, yeah, the lead track from the new records called hashtag IRL. And it's sort of like my social commentary on the 21st century and the internet. Um, it's quite a weird little track but I wanted it to be like that sort of I wanted it to feel really intense and in your face just like how you know the internet age is as well <laughs> um, are you are you a fan social media or are you making a point um, I guess I'm just making a point about how everyone is so obsessed by the internet now and the internet is an amazing thing I mean I guess I've got to give it a lot of credit for letting me do my thing in terms of music because I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for the internet but at the same time it, I just think it's really crazy how when you get on a train now every single person is just on their phone and just about how ironically social media is actually really antisocial. I think. 
searching, 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 Hashtag get online. Hashtag get online. Hashtag get online. Hashtag get online. Hashtag alone. Hashtag OMG. Debut release, uh, Mystic Places, that was in October 2013, uh, on Cassim Moss's label. Uh, how did how did that one come about? I mean, were you were you a fan of his work anyway? Yeah, I'm a big fan of his work, and so that's another thing that completely just crept up on me, and I was really surprised by. Uh, I think he he first found out about me through listening to my NTS show. Um, and so yeah, he was listening to that radio show, and then I think he just sort of like went onto my website or Facebook or something, and then saw I had a SoundCloud and listened to my music on there, and really liked some of the tracks. Then he got in touch with me, but he actually got in touch under an alias, so I didn't know who it was. Um, and he just got in touch saying oh, I really like this track and I want to release it. And then once there'd been some emails back and forth, and he said that it was on his label Omnira, then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> That's Kasim Moss. <laughs> so yeah, and that's how it happened. And like, uh, it was really cool to work with him. And he's such a cool guy. Um, still good mates and everything. And I think we might be doing another release together as well. Fate's exclusive EP uh, that came out last year featured the track for Drake. 
which I understand was you were hoping that he would hear it and sing over it. Did did you ever get that call? Uh, not yet. But still waiting. I'm still waiting, but it's gonna happen. I keep ha- okay. It's, this is gonna sound weird, but I keep having dreams about it. Like I keep having dreams about working with Drake. The last one was probably about three weeks ago. So <laughs> it's got to mean something. I don't know. I mean, obviously, that's just one of... That's just like a pipe dream of mine. But then I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have a go and try and make a track that I think he would like. So I got really geeky about it and I did loads of research <laughs> on Drake. Um, I listened to loads of his tracks and made notes about the structure and the sort of... Um, lengths of the choruses versus and the verses and then I was reading some essays about him about how he's like the postmodern rapper and he likes to rap over 24 bar phrases instead of the traditional 16 bar so I kind of took all of that into account when I was making the track <laughs> and did you stalk him afterwards and try and send him no get I it think to him I, I probably just tweeted it a couple a couple times but obviously nothing back but I'm not I'm not too worried about it I reckon he'll hear it at some point yeah Who else is on the list that you'd you know like to? Is there other male singers that you would like to particularly do a track for? Well, maybe like ASAP Rocky. I think he's another quite forward-thinking rapper in terms of the sounds that he goes for. Um, Frank Ocean, and may, just not not keeping it to males. I think MIA is really cool. It would be amazing to make a track for her. That would be another dream. And then I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about all the really big, big people that <laughs> would be amazing to work with. But other people too, like I really like King Cruel and um, Blue Daisy, who's this other UK rapper. But he, he, his music's interesting because his instrumentals are like death metal instrumentals. <laughs> so I don't know how I'd work with that, but we'll find a way. Cool. Um- I want to head back really to some of your earliest influences. Uh, you grew up in in London. What were you what were you listening to? What were your family listening to? What? Uh... Um, well, yeah. So I'm London born and bred, and grew up in central London, which was a good experience. I think I can't really imagine ever living anywhere else. Um, when I was growing up, my family's not really that musical. I mean, my parents would be listen to some music sometimes, but it wasn't like a thing. Um, but my first big musical influence was Michael Jackson. And my mum and dad always talk about how when I was really young, like one year old, they taped this programme about Michael Jackson off the TV. And then I got obsessed with it and I was just watching it so much until the tape wore out. And then they had to go and buy me another video of this Michael Jackson documentary. And I remember that really well because I just used to watch it every day. And... Yeah, so he's probably my biggest musical hero because I just think he's such a visionary and it doesn't matter how old his music is, you listen to it now and it's still amazing and it still sounds fresh. And um, the thing, one of the things I'm most struck by is his demo versions of songs like Billie Jean or um, 
Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, where it's so rough, like he hasn't even worked out the words, but in terms of the arrangement, it's all there, like all the percussion, all the melodies, harmonies. It's just incredible. Well, you brought in some tracks for us today, as we always ask, and obviously, naturally, there's a Michael Jackson track on there. So which one, which one have you got? It's so hard to choose one track, because every single track is amazing. But I went for Remember the Time by Michael Jackson, that's off the Dangerous album has a really good video where it's all gold and it's got Iman and Eddie Murphy in it. And yeah, again, it's one of those tracks where you listen to it now and you can see how it's influenced so much contemporary music, contemporary R&B and hip hop music. Uh, I just love like the bass line in it, the arrangement, everything. And it's really good to dance to. Did a, uh, you did a whole show dedicated to uh, Michael Jackson on your NTS. Yeah, I, saw. <laughs> I just wanted an excuse to do that. And then it was, yeah, the show fell on the weekend of his death anniversary. So I thought, OK, well, this is a good occasion. And um, so, yeah, I just did some research. Well, I picked all my favourite Michael Jackson songs and then did a lot of research as well into him, you know, so I could give the listeners some facts about each of the tracks and how well they did and... I was just awestruck when I was d doing all that research just to see how much he's achieved, you know, how many records he sold. It's amazing. You mentioned NTS, obviously uh, one of our favourite stations in London. Um, you've had a show there for a few years now where you're showcasing your own taste in music and a lot of music from around the world. Um, is that an important outlet for you alongside making music? Oh, yeah, totally. Like... I really, really enjoy presenting a radio show and I'd never had any experience of it before NTS. Um, but then once I'd started doing my show on there, it's really turned into one of my favourite things that I do. I put in quite a lot of effort into making the show. It probably takes me around two full days of work for each show. <laughs> that lasts one hour because um, anyone who's listened to the show will know that I play lots of interesting music from around the world and then also talk about it a bit just to give the listeners some information because I feel like a lot of the 
stuff I play on there, if I don't contextualize it, then half of the experience is kind of lost. You know, it's interesting to know, like, this is a recording that was made in 1909 on a phonograph in Central Asia, and it features some Siberian throat singing or something like that, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I studied ethnomusicology when I was an undergrad student at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and that experience provides the basis for the show because um, when I was studying there it was the first time really that I'd come into contact with all this incredible music from around the world because I think when you grow up in in the west in Europe or America you don't naturally come across that music you know we grow up with western classical music and pop music and all of you know the things that we're used to um, so yeah, I just thought, wow, the, all this stuff is really um, just mind-blowing and it really kind of opens up your horizons and I just wanted to share it with other people. Where do you find all this? Um, is it physical? Are you online looking? Are you in shops or a bit of both? It's just a mixture of everything. So uh, a lot of stuff I collected whilst I was at SOAS because they've got a really incredible music archive. Um, but then... Otherwise, yeah, just online, in record stores, from talking to people. I mean, this weekend I was in Paris and I went to a flea market and there's this North African guy um, set like with a music stand. And so I just spoke to him. I was like, okay, so what's the latest, you know, North African Arabic music that you've got? Of like, he gave me this, this like really crazy electronic mix of this type of music called Rai, which is sort of Arabic dance music, and then also the latest French trap. <laughs> so just, you know, you just talk to people and you find out. And I think it's the same for anything, any kind of passion that you have, whether it's music or motorcycles or shoes, or, you know, you know how to find it because you've got the motivation. Right, well, let's, um, let's stop again for another a track that you brought in. When I was thinking of them chronologically, Michael Jackson came first because that was my first musical obsession. And my second one was Oasis. <laughs> so I guess the Oasis track should be next. And I've chosen Supersonic off the Definitely Maybe album, which was the first CD I ever bought. Uh, how were o Oasis introduced to you? Was it from the radio at the time, Friends or...? Um, Probably just from, yeah, the radio and TV, watching Top of the Pops and MTV. And I got really obsessed with them, probably from about the age of eight or nine, I think, until the age of about 13. Right. Yeah, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I had all the albums, everything. They actually lived really close to where I lived. So I used to see Noel and Liam Gallagher quite a lot on St. John's Wood High Street, just chilling. Once I was walking down the street and I saw Noel and Liam and Paul Weller and Alan McGee, who is the Oasis manager, all sitting outside this cafe and I just froze. <laughs> I think I walked into a lamppost because I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I really liked them a lot. I need to be myself. i
Now you you do well, we've done quite a few sort of guest mixes uh, for others as well. Um, do you treat them in a different way to your own show on NTS? Um, it depends what the outlet is for the guest mix um, because I DJ on NTS and obviously that's got a certain aesthetic there and then I also DJ a lot out at parties where you can't really play this crazy weird field recordings that I would play on the radio because it would just empty out the dance floor in 10 seconds so um, yeah it just depends so I'll just for some of the mixes I've done they're really sort of upbeat party mixes and then other ones for example the one I did for Giles Peterson's Worldwide Radio that was more reflective of my NTS style so I don't, know, I don't like to pigeonhole myself like I think quite a lot of artists feel the need they have to do because there's so much different music I like my tastes are so diverse and I just want to try and convey that to the audience as much as possible now you did obviously you mentioned the ethnomusicology at university uh, can you just explain a bit more about that you know what, what does it entail when you're studying well, the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is one of the colleges of the University of London, as you can tell from the name, they specialised in everything about Asia and Africa. And so the music course there is called Ethnomusicology, just because I guess in the world of academia, all studies about music that aren't Western have taken on that name. <laughs> so, but no, it, you, that's what it is. You just learn about music from other parts of the world. Um, there's still a lot of music theory involved and you have that side of things where you have to write transcriptions and things um, but yeah you get the opportunity to listen to and to play amazing instruments that I don't think you'd be able to get your hands on otherwise that easily and find teachers for so for example when I was there in my first year I had to play uh, Javanese gamelan which is compulsory for all the music students and then we also did Balinese gamelan in second year and then um, I was in the Turkish ensemble I was trying to learn the Turkish reed flute which is called the ney which was so hard even though I already played the you know the normal flute so I thought okay well it might be an easier transition but it wasn't um, and then I also played in the classical Thai ensemble but my main, my main performance instrument was the sitar. So I took that up and um, had really rigorous lessons for the whole of the three years, because then at the end of your final year, you have to give a performance exam on that instrument, which is what I did. It was really hard. Again, I thought because I have experience of playing the guitar, so it wouldn't be so difficult, but it's completely, completely different. Um, the main difference is the fact that it's an oral music tradition, so there's no notation at all. And when you come from a background of like learning Western classical music, as I did, and you're used to uh, having sheet music and sort of learning it that way, then it's really different. And I had nothing like that at all. You just have to learn all the scales by heart. You have to learn all the pieces by heart as well. And then the piece that I played at the end, I played about 15 minutes. I mean, when you listen to sitar music um, or any other North Indian classical music, you'll know that the pieces last for a really long time, maybe up to 40 minutes or even an hour. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot to remember. Let's stop again for another track you brought in today. Um, 
I've brought in My Favourite Things by John Coltrane, which is his version of the song from The Sound of Music. And um, when I first heard this track, I couldn't stop listening to it. I think I listened to it on repeat for about a week and really annoyed all my housemates because they were like, turn it off. Um, but yeah, jazz music is another area of music that I'm a really big fan of. And again, another area of music which I think needs to be communicated better to younger people because it, it has this sort of fusty mm, reputation, I think. The same with world music, maybe the same with Bob Dylan, I don't know. But uh, I mean, jazz is such a sort of revolutionary form of music. I always think about what it must have felt like when um, the sort of first sort of avant-garde jazz musicians started doing their thing and what the audiences thought, you know? when it sort of morphed into uh, what it was after bebop. Because it's just so uh, reactionary to every kind of like Western type of music that existed before that. And yeah, John Coltrane's one of my favorite artists. Um, he's probably one of the first people I listened to that got me more into jazz as well, so. Before you, you started studying there, what was your passion for these, these instruments already there? What what kind of led you into that path? To be fair, no. I mean, I I learnt different instruments as I was growing up. Learnt the recorder, <laughs> the flute, guitar, and piano, um, and the oboe for a while, but that didn't really work out. <laughs> and um, so yeah, and I had I hadn't come across any of these other amazing instruments like Indonesian gamelan music, or I mean I knew about the sitar because that's quite famous. But um, when I first started at SOAS and we had an induction, um, the music department did an induction and there was a kora player there and the kora is a West African harp. And it was the first time I'd ever seen this instrument or heard it and it just really made a big impact on me. 
And then I went to speak to the head of the music department、um, to ask her if I could actually take music as a proper course because I'd initially applied just to do history at university. So yeah, you you say you, you, you South African history. You were studying, was it? Yeah, well, at undergrad level, again, I did all different types of history from around the world.、I、did、uh, study the Atlantic slave trade, the Mughals in India,、um, South African history, Middle Eastern history, like the history of Islam and、um, Southeast Asia during the Cold War. These are all the different courses that you can do at SOAS, and it was good. But then, yeah, the course I did on South African history really.、Um, Had a, like it really got me interested in that part of the world and the history of that country. And so after I finished my undergrad degree, I got a place at Cambridge to do an MPhil specialising in South African history. So I did that for a year. And then you went and worked there as a, a lawyer. Is that yeah.、Right? So yeah, people always like, how come you've got such a big link to South Africa? And it's purely because I, I'm interested in the country. I don't have any family or anything there. But yeah, so I did the MPhil. At Cambridge, and then I went out there to do some research. At that time, I was looking at the looking at the、um, political role of the black press during apartheid. So I went out there to look at the newspaper archives and interview veteran journalists. It was amazing to do this first-hand research. And then after that, I came back to London. When I finished Cambridge,、um, I did the law conversion course and then the bar. Um, with a scholarship from Lincoln's Inn, which is lucky, but they're probably wondering now, like, why am I not doing law? I was going to ask about that transition, you know, in, into sort of making music.、Um, how did it? You know, what were your first forays into? Were you making music anyway when you were studying, or?、Uh, yeah, I've been making music for a while, just on the side, I guess. You know, I never really thought it was going to be the main thing that I do because. Like I mentioned, I had the really sort of academic、um, background, and then went into law, and I was working in that for a while too.、Um, it just happened really unexpectedly. When I was at uni, I was in another band called Of Four. That was like a noise band. And that was when I was going through my noise noise music phase, and then、um, and then just I was just messing around, making stuff like on Garage Band first, and then trying out other things. And then I had a few tracks on my SoundCloud. I don't really think anyone would listen to them, but then, as I mentioned earlier about how Kasim Moss heard my music from there, that's how it started. So I do owe a lot to the internet.、Um, well, let's let's have another、uh, and listen to another track that you've brought in today. Well, how about the Bjork track?、Um, I chose a track called Desired Constellation, which is off her Medulla album, which is one of my all-time favorite albums. The thing I like a lot about it is the fact that there's hardly any instruments used on it. She worked loads with the beatboxer Razel, and so most of the sounds on the entire album are all done by a human voice.、Uh, but the one I've picked actually, I think, might be the only track on the album that has electronic sounds on it. I just really like the simplicity of it, and it sounds so nice. On the table, I shake them like dice and throw them on the table. Repeatedly, repeatedly, until 
for music in South Africa when you were there were you out and about so after I got called to the bar the literally the day after that I went out to South Africa for six months to work with some human rights lawyers there specializing in women's rights in Cape Town which is a very intense but interesting experience because there's a, a lot of work to be done there uh, but yeah so at this I was doing that as my full-time job but at the same time still working a lot on my own music I was DJing a lot out there as well because there's quite a vibrant music scene in the city. Um, and it's also quite a small scene, so you meet everyone quickly and then you get, yeah, you kind of get to know how it all works and can get bookings to play. Um, and then I was making music and working with some South African vocalists out there too. That's actually when I made the track Mystic Places. It was when I was out there. I made it in one night on a really crappy speaker. <laughs> you know, one of those little portable ones. Um, but it turned out all right. <laughs> November 2014, you were commissioned by the Tate Gallery to produce a piece of music for one of the Turner Prize artists. Uh, and you've since performed live in both Tate Britain and Tate Modern. What was the project like to work on? So, yeah, so the Tate Britain got in touch with me um, in 2014 to ask if I could make a piece of music to reflect the artwork of one of the Turner Prize nominees that year, James Richards. And his was a video piece called Rosebud. It was really explicit and so yeah I mean for me it was a really interesting challenge because it's the first time I'd ever had to make um, a piece of music that was based on a visual stimulus so I had to go and look at the work quite a few times and make notes about what I thought the work already actually had a sort of soundtrack to it so I didn't know whether I should take that on board or try and like block it out of my of my ideas um, and yeah so his work was this sort of montage of video and photo footage of different images of nature that we consider to be beautiful like flowers and birds and water and then it was juxtaposed with, with these sort of really sexually explicit images a lot of them which had been from books confiscated from the Tokyo Public Library because over there in Japan they have um, they have this law that they can't hold any material that might cause arousal in the viewer and they were all 
pictures by photographers like Man Ray and things like that, that you, you know, not necessarily there like primarily as pornography or anything but there was nudity in them and the Japanese librarians they use sandpaper to scrub out all the offending parts it's quite so it looks quite strange anyway but yeah and then there was also like this really full-on explicit um, footage of someone's bum hole <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd have the same amount of freedom with my music I was thinking about what I should do and I liked how the artwork was exploring this idea of what we consider to be explicit and um, censorship and things like that. So for my musical piece, what I did was um, I sampled loads of sounds from internet pornography, which was really intense because I was listening, listening to it over and over again in the studio and it was driving me nuts. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my idea behind it was that, well, pornography is uh, regarded as a really visual stimulus and visually explicit um, but if you take away the visual aspect from it and you only have this the sound would it still be as explicit and uh, it turned out the answer was yes because the tape actually they actually uh, asked me to modify the original piece so that it didn't sound so bad well only because I mean the the branch of the tape that was commissioning me was Tate Collectives and they do a lot of work with young people so they had to take into account that under 18s might be listening which is fair enough um, and it was the first time they'd done anything like this so I guess they didn't even really know what would be the outcome. This seems a strong link with image in your music you know that was the first time you really started working with on the visual side or had you been doing stuff I'd always thought about it before. I mean, I always had a really strong idea of what I want my artwork to be like and what I want the music videos to be like. Um, I think it would be hard to completely um, dissect the musical element from the visual element. So, and also it's, fu it's fun, you know, like when you're making music and then you think about like, okay, well, how am I gonna portray this visually? Whether it's the album artwork or, um, or a music video or whether it's visuals for your live show. Are you involved heavily with your music videos? Yeah, totally. I mean, the Sweet Tooth video, that was really good. <laughs> I just had this idea that I wanted to have like loads of good looking guys getting covered in sweet things. <laughs> um, and that just feeds into my views on music videos generally in the music industry because when you watch videos you always just see loads of hot girls not wearing very many clothes and you don't really see a lot of hot boys <laughs> semi-naked so it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of just raising that question which is quite a serious question. So do you want to sort of turn around the more general stereotypes in music? Well, I just feel like the way the music industry has been going maybe in the last five or ten years is um, has become really sort of streamlined to this idea that if you're a female making music, there's a really specific um, framework that you need to fit into in terms of what you look like, what you're actually doing. And when I, when I compare artists now like Beyonce and Rihanna um, or you know Taylor Swift and you look at musicians from maybe 20 30 years ago like Kate Bush or Sade or Annie Lennox and people like that where it's completely different there seems to be like a lot more artistic license a lot more individuality and expression of that without 
having to get your clothes off. Like, and I just think about when did that happen? When did that change happen? And yeah, I just, it was, I just feel it's really depressing. Is there a good example of someone who is doing it really well for you, a female uh, artist? I get the the one person that sticks out to me completely is MIA because she just, you can tell she just does her own thing. She's got her own style. Um, she doesn't try to fit into anything other people say. And uh, she's also isn't half naked all the time which is it's really I mean pe people like you, you hear interviews with people like Nicki Minaj and Beyonce talking about how oh it's my choice to look like this so you know I'm a feminist and this is what I want to do and all this stuff but it's just I just totally don't agree with it because I mean okay it's true that sex sells or whatever but I think women need to be stronger than that and they shouldn't conform to these um stereotypes that are set out by men working in the music industry because you don't need to do that. Let's stop again for another track um, that you brought in today. Um, what are you going to play us now? Um, probably Bob Dylan with a song called Isis, which is my favourite Bob Dylan song um, off the album Desire. I was quite late coming to Bob Dylan. I got into him when I was at uni and I just hadn't really thought about him before because I feel like, you know, well, this is the reaction I get when I talk to a lot of my friends about him who haven't really listened to his music and they just think like, oh, he's just not that cool and only for sort of like older men to listen to and it's not the case at all. So I'm trying to like spread the word about Bob Dylan <laughs> to younger people now because he's, again, like such a visionary his lyrics are incredible i don't know how he came up with all that stuff there's so much material even his latest stuff which people seem to diss a bit more like albums like planet waves and stuff i still really like them yeah and so i i really like the lyrics of isis um this is the studio version but there's also a really good live version that was recorded in 1975 when he was on the Rolling Thunder review tour which is good to listen to if you like this one as well cool. alright we'll have a listen to Isis by uh, Bob Dylan I married Isis on the 5th day of May but I could not hold on to her very long so I cut off my hair and I rode straight away oh the wild unknown country where I of darkness and light The fighting line ran through the center of town I hitched up my pony to a post 
just on the rise. Went to a laundry, I washed my clothes down. A man in the corner approached me for a match. I knew right away he was not ordinary. He said, Are you looking for something easy to catch? Said, I got no money. He said, That ain't necessary. We set out that night for the cold in the north. I gave my blanket and he gave me his word I said where are we going he said we be back by the fort I said that's the best news that I've ever heard I was thinking about turquoise I was thinking about gold I was thinking about diamonds and the world's biggest necklace As we rode through the canyons, through the devilish cold I was thinking about Isis, how she thought I was so reckless How she told me that one day we would meet up again And things would be different the next time we went If I only could I hang on and just be her friend I still can't remember all the best things she said Finally, really want to know um, what else you've got planned for 2016. Obviously, EP coming out on Ninja Tune. Yeah, I'm really excited about the new record that's coming out on Ninja Tune at the beginning of March. And then after that, I'll be playing live at South by Southwest, which is another dream of mine that's coming true. Um, I've never played live before in the US, so I want to try and make it as good as I can. Um, what is your uh, live setup? Um, I use the le- setup that I'm using right now. I use a guitar with that goes through a lot of effects, a microphone with a loop pedal, um, a Roland synth, a Roland Gaia SHO1, and then um, a Korg sampler, Um, another Roland sampler and um, a drum machine so it's really hands-on like it's a lot and I try and do as much as possible live Um, it takes a lot of concentration but I think it's, it's interesting for people to look at you know when you're when you're standing there like actually making the sounds and the rhythms rather than just working with a laptop which is how I started doing it first and then kind of developed from that. And do you have a visual element involved as well? in your? I audience? always have a lot of plants on the stage when I play live. That's on the rider, but sometimes they don't always do it. Sometimes they make loads of effort, the places, and sometimes it gets left off because I think I'm not serious. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I always have like having plants. I just like what plants, I don't know, they just give it a different vibe. And then, yeah, I have, I've made my own visuals for uh, the live shows I've done. But I think for the new ones, I'll probably be working with the artist who's designed the artwork for the Ninja Tune release. Um, so that'll be quite interesting. And it'll make a sort of more uniform aesthetic. Brilliant. Well, good luck with South by Southwest thanks. and the, uh, the EP and everything else for this year. And thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
My thanks to Throwing Shade for that interview. And now we turn our attention to some of the new music coming out on the Ninja Tune family of labels. Starting with Darky Freaker and a track called 2CI, which is coming out on Big Dada. Darky Freaker with 2CI from his ADHD EP on Big Dad. Next up, it's The Invisible and a new track from them called Save You on Ninja Tune. Thank you. 
that was Save You by The Invisible on Ninja Tune. And now it's David August, a new signing on Counter Records with a track called JBY. with JBY and that's coming out on Counter Records. Up next it's another new signing, this time Ash Kusha with the track Mudder Fossil from his album I aka I on Ninja Tune. That was Ash Kusha with Mudder Fossil on Ninja Tune. And finally, it's NYAK with a track called Zega featuring Ian Blevins on Technicolor. 
That was Zega by NYAK from the Dollar EP on Technicolor. And that's it for the Ninja Tune podcast. Thanks as usual for Tom for co-producing and for throwing shade for the interview. We'll be back again soon with another episode.